So let me say a prayer for us. We'll kind of jump into our lesson tonight. Lord, we're grateful for this day. We're grateful that we can come together to study your word. I pray that it'll enter our heads, it'll change our hearts, and that it'll cause us to go do your work in this world. I am mindful of all the people in this room, and Lord, I know there are praises, but I also know there are hurts and grief and difficulties, and I, I know that you love us, and I pray that everyone here will feel your presence and that you would strengthen us, increase our faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, come on in and uh, have a seat. There's a number for questions. It's also on your handout. We are talking about the parables of Jesus, and I think I've told you I, I really like studying the parables for several reasons. One, you get to hear Jesus in his own words, and you also get the breadth of Jesus' teaching. We've used a couple of word pictures. I talked about caricatures of Jesus and how this study basically helps us to avoid that. Another word picture we used, I thought I'd home in on just a little bit, was the idea of coming into focus, bringing Jesus into focus. Uh, the parables occupy over a third of Jesus' teachings are in the form of parables. And sometimes if we focus on one part of Jesus, for example, we might be able to see things really well close up, but we don't see them so well far away, or vice versa. And part of the reason for that is we sort of get a little bit of a tunnel vision, if you will, with Jesus. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, you see a ton of this in the world today, but I'll give you conflicting examples. One is if we emphasize the love of Jesus, which is true, Jesus Christ loved us enough to die on a cross for us. But if we only talk about loving Jesus, if we think that all of following Jesus is to love God and love other people, that's true. But if we think that's what it's about, we end up basically in liberalism. We end up in license, as my friend Cliff Sanders likes to call it, which is we, we completely blur out the obedience aspect of it. Jesus said five times, actually, in John 15, he said, if you love me, do what I say, obey. Now, on the other hand, if we look at the obedience, in other words, we must uh, live the life that Jesus calls us to, we could easily bring that into sharp focus and blur out some other things, and we could move to legalism, which is our standing with God depends on just how well are we behaving. That's also an unfocused view of Jesus. So to kind of get to 2020 vision, of Jesus, we need to let him be who he is, and we need to let him say all that he wants to say. And so the parables do that. You'll find that in this study, the parables of Jesus really give you the whole breadth of teaching of the gospel, not just one part of it. So we're going to come out of this with 2020 vision. We started by talking about the foundational teaching of Jesus, and that is the kingdom of God. We talked about how the kingdom of God is, the, is where God rules, whether that's ruling in an individual heart, ruling our lives, we are literally surrendered our lives to the rule of God, or in a bigger sense, the rule of God over his creation and over humanity. Jesus said that Satan was the ruler of this present world because we have sold ourselves into slavery. We have, like Adam and Eve, we believe the lies that Satan has told us. He tells us lies through commercials. He tells us lies through all kinds of ways. And we have believed those lies, just like Adam and Eve did. And so God said, I'm going to crash into the middle of history, and I'm going to redeem or buy back my creation and my kingdom, my rule, is going to expand. And when Jesus came preaching, that's what he came preaching. He said, repent, which means turn around, change your direction, because the kingdom of God is here. Jesus came to usher in the rule of God. And so this is, in one sense, personal, but it's way more than personal. The kingdom is about me, but it's about way more than me. And so as we follow Christ, we join God's work in his kingdom. It's the foundational teaching of Jesus. If we don't see that clearly in our, in our view, we're going to fall into Jesus as a moral teacher 
or Jesus is a good man, or Jesus is my savior, but nothing more. Uh, We're going to miss the picture of Jesus. Jesus thought his main purpose was to usher in the kingdom. That's what he came to do. So we started there. Today, we're going to move on to the second thing that Jesus talked about. And that is, he talked about judgment parables. He talked about where history is going. Christians are unusual in the world of all the world philosophies and ideologies in that Christians have what's called a teleological view of history, meaning it's going somewhere. There's a point to what's going on. And Jesus said, there is indeed a point to what's going on. The kingdom of God is here. The rule of God is expanding. God is here to redeem his people and bring them home to the promised land, if you will. And judgment is coming. There will be a time when God judges the world. He provides justice to the world. That's the first thing I want to talk about as we jump into these parables. We have to understand what the New Testament has to say about this concept of justice. This is one of my most memorable. I was working downtown, and I saw this every day as I would walk to my office after 95 at the Murrah bombing. This uh, was one of the teams, obviously, spray-painted this on the side of the Journal Record Building. We search for the truth. We seek justice. The courts require it. The victims cry for it, and God demands it. There is wired into humanity a desire for justice. You see this even in children. They have this desire for rightness. Uh, I hate to call it fairness. Fairness and justice are two little bit different things, but you understand what I mean. There's a desire for, for setting things right, for justice. Now, to be fair, our sense of justice is very imperfect. I believe that America is the most just nation in the world, but I don't think there's anybody in this room that would disagree. There are, there are definitely far too many cases of injustice, even in this country. And my point is that all human justice is imperfect. So we have this ingrained sense of justice, but our, in, our justice meter, if you will, is imperfect. Well, God has a perfect justice, and you see that in this kingdom living. And I have a lot more to say about kingdom living, but we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But as you think about, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out a piece of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And some of that morality or standard of conduct is absolutely indefensible without ultimate judgment or justice. Let me make sure you understand what I'm saying here, is if you look at the Bible's teachings about how we should conduct our lives, about what God says is right, it is indefensible without the idea of an ultimate judgment or justice happening. I'll give you just a couple of simple examples. The idea of speaking to a person and said, you should, instead of an eye for an eye, we should forgive. We should have compassion for people who don't deserve it. We should pray for our enemies. We should pray for those who persecute us. If someone asks you to go a mile, go the the next mile. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about that teaching at some point, but my point is God is laying out a way of living, a morality, if you will, or an ethical system Now, it's far more than that, but if you look at it simply as a standard of conduct, that you're going to have real problems with that. And people who think of life as temporal, and when I say temporal, I mean if you're going to live 60, 70, 80 years, you're going to die, and that's it. That's all there is. There's no eternity. There's no life after death. There's no accountability. If you don't believe that, if you think that this is all there is, that is a morally indefensible code, and I agree with that. And so the Bible is intensely concerned with the idea of justice. And God is intimately involved with the idea of justice. Kingdom living, God's kingdom is predicated on the sense of God making things right. The idea of justice or the idea of judgment. You look at the world and you contrast this with Jesus' teaching. Look at some, these are just the mass deaths in the 20th century. These are just the big ones. This isn't Aleppo, Syria. This is not Armenia. This is not 
the Balkans. I mean, I think about it, all over. This is not even Chicago, USA. I mean, it's, that's a sad thing. But seriously, you think about it. Look at what happened just in the 20th century. We think that we have progressed. History begs to differ with that conclusion. We have not really progressed. We have simply technologically progressed to the stage where we can kill people on an unprecedented scale, where we can oppress people on an unprecedented scale. Now, if you are looking at the teachings of Jesus Christ, you're looking at this kingdom of God, and you hear Jesus speaking with this as the backdrop, without the idea of ultimate justice, that's a difficult concept. But I want to talk to you just briefly about the New Testament is infused with the idea of justice and setting things right. So Jesus begins to teach these parables about judgment, about justice. I put several on your handout, but we're not going to go through all of them. I wanted you to have them as a reference because they all give you a little different perspective on God's judgment, on justice, if you will, the judgment day. And I want to talk about two of them that I think really highlight it. The first is this parable about the good seed and the weeds in the field. It's typically called the parable of the weeds. And here's, here's what Jesus said. This is in Matthew 13. By the way, Matthew 13 has seven parables just lined up back to back. All these kingdom and judgment parables which go together. So he told them another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven, remember Matthew because he's really Jewish, says kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. He just, they just didn't like that phrase, but that's what it means. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man who sowed good seed in his field. The Greek word there is the word for wheat. He sowed wheat in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Well, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also became evident. And so the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow wheat in your field? Where then did all these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. So the servants asked him, Do you want us to go out and pull them up? He said, No, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you could root up the wheat with them. Let them grow up together until the harvest. At that time, it'll be easy. It'll be obvious. He said, I'll tell the harvesters, collect all the weeds, tie them into bundles. We're going to burn them. Then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. Well, not much explanation for this. Again, I said it's, it's amazing how brilliant uh, Jesus is. He uses this analogy 2,000 years ago. Parables are basically analogies. He uses this analogy 2,000 years ago, and yet you and I sitting here still understand this. That word for weeds is uh, called zizania in Greek is the word, but it's a specific weed in Israel, there's a poisonous form and a non-poisonous form, and it looks like wheat until it gets older. In other words, they knew what they were talking about. They all were like, oh yeah, seen that problem. In other words, this weed, you, you can't tell it apart very easily from wheat until it grows up and then it doesn't, doesn't have grain on it. And so then you can. So what he's telling them is really vividly true to them. And so he tells them this story about weeds in a, wheat, in a field that have been put there maliciously. And he said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Well, they're a little bit puzzled. And so this is one of, again, one of the few that he explains. And look how he explains this. He said, then he left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, you need to explain this parable of the weeds in the field. And he said, well, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. He said, I came to bring this good news of the kingdom. It's a little like the parable of the sower, but with a twist. He said the Son of Man sowed the good seed, this good news, the kingdom of God into the world. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. In other words, I planted people who are hearing the word of God and following Jesus Christ. They are now citizens of the kingdom of God. He calls them sons of the kingdom, children of the kingdom. He said that's who the good seed is. Now the weeds are the sons of the evil one those who serve Satan. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. He's the one who captured them. The harvest is the end of the age. It's judgment day and the harvesters are angels. He said, the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. 
The Son of Man will send out his angels. You can read about this, by the way, in the book of Revelation. It tells the same story. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. All those who follow Satan. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Everybody who has ears, you better listen to this, Jesus said. This is a judgment parable. It's again, what is it about? It's about the kingdom of God. He said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. But this time, he's basically saying the kingdom of God is going to spread in the world. But Satan also is vying for the hearts and the minds and the loyalty of humanity. And there will be some in this world who follow him. He said, but the day will come. And here's the key idea of the parable. There will be a judgment. There will be a time of separating the grain from the weeds. And there is an ultimate destiny for each. And just to use shorthand, the wheat, the sons of the kingdom, those who follow Jesus Christ, those who have been saved, they go to be with the Father. We call that heaven. And those who do not, here's how he describes hell. We use the word hell for what happens to them, where they go. He says they basically, you get the idea of this thrown into the fiery, fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, a lot of people would like to tell you exactly what hell is like. You know, hell is uh, basically like being in the Starbucks line, you know, and it's, it's really, really long, and then when you get there, they're out of coffee. You know, that's like hell, right? Or hell is like being trapped in a snowstorm at the in-law's house, you know, for an extra week. Yeah, people come up with a lot of ideas, but Jesus basically gives you the idea that this is not pleasant. This is indeed something that God is separating people. He's judging them. That's the key idea of all the judgment parables. And he couches it and said, this is what the kingdom is like. In other words, part of God's rule on earth inevitably involves judgment. Remember, back to our justice idea. If you're going to live in the kingdom, he says, you ultimately have to have judgment. You have to have justice. It's part of the kingdom of God. It's part of what God is doing in the world. One other thing I'd like to tease out of this, and I don't want to press this parable too far, but I think it's interesting that he doesn't weed the field right away. He doesn't seem to be in a big hurry because, you know, at the beginning, it's not always obvious which are the weeds and which is the grain. It's not immediately obvious, but it becomes obvious, doesn't it, as they grow up. It's a little like the parable of the sower. There, a little different parable, but he says, you know, when people accept Christ, some have really shallow roots and don't last. Others grow up, but they never bear any fruit because the weeds kind of choke them out. And some of them become good grain, good wheat, and bear fruit or bear grain. This takes a little different point, and he says, look at it from this perspective. There are, if those are people... You have some who follow Christ and are faithful and bear fruit, and you have others who effectively are serving Satan. And he said it's not always obvious. It's not immediately obvious, but it's ultimately obvious. So there's a little bit of patience. You don't necessarily know until you see the fruit of obedience. They look a little bit alike at the beginning. There's a great passage in Matthew 7. This is, again, Jesus teaching. This isn't a parable. This is just Jesus teaching. And listen to this. This is the same idea. Watch out for false prophets, false preachers, false speakers. They come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look innocent, but they're really not. Inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. In other words, they might look like wheat, but they're actually these weeds. He said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. In other words, when they grow up and you begin to see what happens, you'll see, is there grain there or is that a poisonous weed? He said, people don't pick grapes from thorn bushes. They don't pick figs from thistles. In other words, you may not know what this plant is, but you will eventually. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. He said, every good tree uh, cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, this is back to this, when it grows up, if it's not grain, it's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, this idea of judgment. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, here's the scary part. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody 
who says, Lord, you know, Jesus, I, you're the son of God, will, is in the kingdom of God. Many will say to me on that judgment day, hey, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons? Didn't we do a bunch of good stuff? And I will tell them plainly, I do not know you. So depart from me. Interesting statement about this time of judgment and a couple of ideas here. One is the idea of being distinct. Obedience to Christ, following Christ, being in the king. These are all synonymous phrases. Being in the kingdom of God, being surrendered to God's will, following him, however you want to say it, being saved, although that word doesn't really carry as much strength as what Jesus is talking about here. That is going to inevitably bear fruit because at some point you will see the distinction. You will see a distinction. There is a principle, kind of a lesson that comes out of all the judgment parables is God is going to make a distinction in people. There are those who are gods. There are those who are not. And we are called to be distinct. Here's a great little passage in James. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There's a sense in which the church, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We live in this world, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We will, at some point, look very different. And Jesus said the way you will look different is your obedience will bear fruit. You begin to live like Jesus. We begin to do the things that Jesus does. So this idea of being distinct from the world. Word picture, true story. I may have told you this before, but it sticks with me, and maybe it'll stick with you. But this idea, every time I hear this idea, I think of this, this a true story. Uh, when I was at AT&T, we had a headquarters in St. Louis in one of the divisions I was in. This is many years ago. And so I spent a lot of time in St. Louis. So I'd go up there for meetings and conferences and that kind of thing. And always stayed, we stayed in a hotel that was really close, big Marriott, really close to headquarters there. So I'd stayed there a lot. Got in there one night really late, go up to my room, straight to bed, early meetings the next morning. Get up, go and get into the elevator. And I realized this is weird. There's something different about the elevator. And I'm kind of tired. I'm really tired because I got in really late. And so I'm sitting there feeling a little foggy. I've had no coffee yet. And I'm looking in the elevator, and there is a long stick, a rod, and it's got a string attached to it, and it's taped on the elevator right by all the buttons. So I'm sitting there going down, just kind of feeling pretty stupid, like I have no idea why somebody taped a string with a rod on it on the elevator. And it was just kind of, you know, one of those things early morning, it was puzzling me, it was really bugging me. I thought, if I don't solve this, I'm just going to bug me all day. So we get to the bottom. I go, I have no idea why this thing is here. Doors open. I step out into the lobby of the Marriott. It is a sea of little people, wall to wall. There's a little people convention there. <laughs> True story. I step out. I'm the tallest guy in this entire place, completely filled with little people. Then ding. Now I know why there's a stick in the, uh, there's a rod in the elevator to reach some of the, for some of the people, you know, to be able to reach those buttons. You talk, so I, you know, I'm getting my suit and all, I just kind of, hi, good morning, good to see you, and just kind of walk on out all the way through, it kind of parts like the Red Sea, you know, you're not here for the convention, are you? No, I'm not. And so I walk through and I walk out. I felt very distinct in that group. Friendly, not uncomfortable, but I felt like, yeah, I don't belong here. And there's a sense in which, I mean, that's humorous. It was, really was pretty funny at the time, but it always graphically gets me the idea that as Christians, we're never going to be that comfortable in this world. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. And you get in all these judgment parables, you're going to see the idea of separation and the idea that we should be distinct and the way you'll know we're distinct is that our obedience leads to what God calls fruit. Let me pause there and see if we have a question. That's our first judgment parable, kind of our introduction to Jesus taking this kingdom idea, and he's going to bring it, advance it a little bit. Laura? Um, this is kind of a general question, but uh, can you tell us how many parables, distinct parables, does Jesus tell that are recorded in the New Testament? Yes. How many parables does Jesus tell? 
there's a little disagreement about this, but, but it's not, uh, I'll tell you why it makes a lot of sense to you. Parables are essentially analogies. It could be a simple simile. The kingdom of heaven is like this. That's it. It's just a sentence. Some people count those as parables because they kind of are. This that you just saw is a comparison. The kingdom of heaven is like, but then it goes on and tells a story. So that's a long-winded way of saying, depends a little on how you count it. I count about 39 parables. So about 39 parables. People's count will be a little different, but nobody has any real disagreement about it. But some of them are very short. Some of them are very long. When we were talking about Matthew chapter 13, is it not true that none are righteous and all men do evil? Yeah, no question in Romans, you're going to see Paul teach that none is righteous, not even one of us. In other words, we all stand under a, a, a sentence of judgment. But I want to, I'm glad you asked that because I want to bring it on because that you're going to hear that kind of thing a lot as a leveler. Like, well, everybody sins, so we're all the same. I agree with the first part, vehemently disagree with the second part, and so does Jesus. We all commit sin. We are not all the same. You've heard me say this before. The difference between Christians is we all commit sin, but followers of Christ are not committed to sin. In other words, there are different trajectories in life. The kingdom of God is distinguished by the fact that Jesus Christ, first of all, made it possible for us to enter the kingdom. His work on the cross and raised in the grave. I don't want you to think for a moment, we get into the kingdom by our own power. So you understand what I'm saying. Jesus Christ made that possible. But the point is, have I accepted Christ? Is Do I have faith in Christ? Have I repent and joined the kingdom? That's a different trajectory than someone who has not. And do both of these individuals commit sin? Oh, absolutely. Christians aren't saved because they don't commit sin. Christians are saved because they're not committed to sin. You see, these judgment parables, what he's saying is some of these weeds belong to Satan. They are chasing the things of Satan. They are following Satan. I'm not saying they're Satan worshipers. I'm just saying they're people who are looking and their goal in life is self-centeredness, fame, fortune, power. You know what I'm talking about, people that that is effectively what they serve. And God said, you are sons of Satan. And those who say, I have surrendered my life to God's will. I trust in Jesus Christ. I will follow him. So I'm glad you asked that question. Everybody commits sin. That's not actually the question here. That's not what makes Christians. What makes Christians, followers of Christ, I prefer the phrase, citizens of the kingdom or sons of the kingdom or followers of Christ, is your trajectory. Do you trust Jesus Christ and are you in the kingdom? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He said, the kingdom of heaven will be known by those who follow Christ and those who do not. And God will make a distinction. Everybody sins, but Christians are not committed to sin. The trajectory, that's all judgment parables are. Let me show you how how this path ends. For those who are grain, it ends here. And for those who are weeds, it ends there. That's a great question. Because sometimes you're going to hear people say, well, Christians sin like everybody else. Okay, Christians sin. What's your point? What they're implying is, therefore, there's no difference. That is not even slightly true. There's all the difference in the world. And that's what these parables are about. Great, great point. I'm glad we got to talk about that. Where does the concept of carnal sin come from? And how does it fit into the kingdom of God? Uh, well, I'll just touch this briefly because you can get into a lot of theology on that. But just the idea of the flesh, you're going to see, uh, I'm trying to think how the NIV translates this, uh, the sinful nature, the flesh, the sins of the flesh, following the flesh. In other words, it's basically saying, I am going to give into the temptations of this world. And so, for example, lust or greed or gossip or self-centeredness are all considered sins of this world. That's following this world. That's not what Christ is about. That's not entirely satisfactory, but uh, you're going to see that word carnal or flesh or sinful nature, depending on how they translate that Greek word. You'll see it a lot. And it's contrasted with the life of the Spirit, which is life in Christ. 
When people die without Jesus, is there an awareness of hell at the time of death, or does this happen at the great white throne judgment? Yeah, that's, again, slightly off topic, but a fair point. There are two, let me just leave it with this. I'll tell you, there are two points of view on this, uh, because the scripture is not entirely clear, but because, because the scripture doesn't intend to be. In other words, I'm telling you there's not an answer to this. I'm just telling you it's not the thing Jesus most wanted to talk about. There is an opinion that sometimes when you die, you go right to heaven. And some Christians believe, and they'll quote some passages that indicate that when you die, you experience heaven then. Well, that means judgment's happening all the time, right? It's like a self-checkout lane. It's always open, right? And so you, if you're going to go to heaven, there's a judgment that's happened. Others would say, no, you sleep, meaning you don't experience any sense of passing. But in the end time, the trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall descend and he will gather up, his angels will gather up, even those who are dead will rise from the dead, and so it will all happen at the end of time. There are two, kind of two different opinions about the timing of that. There's not a difference of opinion about the ultimate outcome. So, good question, couple differences of opinion on when that will happen. Well, let's look at one more parable. I know I put several on your sheet, and they're really good, and they all give you a different aspect, but here's a twin parable to the parable of the weeds. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like, first it was like a guy planting seed. Now it's like a net that was let down into the lake. The Sea of Galilee is just a big lake. Caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish into baskets, but they threw the bad fish away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. Another judgment parable, a separation. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He uses that exact same formula to describe hell. It'll be like a fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, this is not a pleasant end. This is justice being done, in a sense. In other words, the victims cry out for justice. God demands justice. In other words, those who have been victims, those who are right with God, who have been oppressed or persecuted or killed or the awful things that get done, there is justice. So again, a judgment parable where you see division, you see justice. This is an interesting parable because it also would have hit them because the way they fish in the Sea of Galilee, they don't, they don't go do the bass fishing thing. You know, they don't throw out a line. This is commercial. They're trying to feed their families. They take these net, these drag nets. Sometimes they're really big, sometimes they're not. Sometimes there's a guy on shore and there are people who are walking and they just take the net and they just do this. And they scoop up a lot of fish and they drag it up onto shore. Sometimes they'll get two boats and they'll each get an end and they'll go out where they think there's a school and the boats will have the net between them and they'll come around and then they'll pull that in and dump the fish into the boat. And then they get back, they don't keep all those fish. I mean, they're not, the Jews weren't allowed to eat every fish. Not all of them were ritually clean. Some of them don't taste very good. And so they're not commercially viable. So they would literally sort the fish. So he's using a really common experience that you and I can still understand to talk about. He said, that's what the kingdom of God's going to be like. There will be a judgment where there's a sorting out. He said, and it will be sorting those who serve Satan, who we call wicked, and those who serve Christ, whom we call righteous, those who are right with God. So you see a second judgment parable happening. Next principle. Our choices are either kingdom choices or worldly choices. This is a a powerful idea in the scripture as well. Just like the first principle was that we are called to be distinct from the world. God's going to make a separation. Now let's talk about our part of that. That our choices are either choices toward the kingdom to be consistent with the way God says we live and what we do, or toward the world, which is consistent with our self-interest, our self-centeredness, our greed, whatever it may be. Choices one way or the other. Here's some more teaching. First one's from Jesus. Remember, he said, no one can serve two masters. In other words, you can't be a good fish and a bad fish. You can't have dual citizenship. Oh, I'm in the kingdom of God. I got my, you know, my voting card right here, but I also live in the kingdom of the world. God said, no. That's not the way this works. Choices matter. You know, how we behave matters. Our trajectory matters. They're different paths. He said, you can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other or vice versa. 
You cannot serve both God and money. And what he's saying here is he's using money as basically the symbol for all the things that Satan says will make you happy. All the things of this world, whether it's money or fame or power or pleasure, or security, whatever it is, versus seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's another phrase Jesus is going to use. Paul, in chapter 6, asks this question. Well, can we continue to sin because of the grace? In other words, now that we're in the kingdom, can we just continue to do all the sins that we want? He said, absolutely not. He said, don't you realize that when you offer yourselves to obey someone, you're slaves to the one you obey, and it's either going to be to sin, which leads to death, or it's going to be to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So you get this idea in the scripture that there is justice, there's judgment, and that there are different trajectories that lead different places, and that our choices are either kingdom choices or worldly choices. Here's another interesting thing. I told you before that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And I'm going to tell you there are people in the church who are not of the church. You understand what I'm saying? Is that we are known by our fruits. Obedience leads to righteousness, and being a slave to sin leads to death. And you cannot always tell the difference immediately. That's one of the reasons that we're not quick to judge one another. We don't see the heart, but the truth will be known in the end, and God will separate those things. Not, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. That's not our trajectory. But there are those in the church who are not of the church. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so we need to be a little patient and non-judgmental with each other, not because the truth won't be known, but because we don't always see that truth. Sometimes we need to let the plants grow. And sometimes things that we thought were going to be a weed, that may be a wheat. Don't underestimate the power of God's spirit to draw people to his kingdom. But the judgment parables are telling us that that's not always going to happen. So, pause there for a question, and then I want to answer two questions about heaven and hell based on these parables. Question? Yeah, I have several questions about living in the world. Um, first, can you define sin without talking about doing the will of God? Well, let's see. My friend Cliff Sanders... Uh, kind of gives you a good Wesleyan understanding of sin. And he said sin, uh, this isn't unique to Cliff, but he expresses it really well, that sin is misplaced love. Uh, James K.A. Smith, who's not a Wesleyan, would agree with this, and he said we become what we love. We pursue what we love. And so this idea of there are different trajectories, and our trajectory in life reflects what we love. And if we begin to live our lives in ways that are not consistent with who Jesus was, for example, we live self-centered life, looking out for number one. We live lives of greed. We live lives of judgment, non-compassion. In other words, we live lives that are characterized by that. We love the ruler of this world. That's what God said. You may not realize it, but that's what you love. If we love God, we do those things, and they reflect that we love God. We sacrifice ourselves, as Romans would say. We've crucified our old man. We are reborn into the kingdom, and we want to be like Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Spirit of God is forming us into the image of Christ. So sin is anything, it's hard for me to explain. I'm going to give you some approximations. Sin are all the behaviors that are on this trajectory toward the love of this world, the love of self, the love of power, pride, fame. And pleasing God, righteousness, is anything on this trajectory. But I hesitate to even say that because my point is, it's not all about your behavior. It's only through the blood of Christ and trusting him and surrendering my life that I can even get into the kingdom. I can't live that life on my own. But basically, sin is anything that is not on this trajectory of God anything that goes against who God is and what he says. And we typically call that the will of God. In other words, the revealed picture. If you want to think about it this way, it's not a bad way to think about it. The New Testament shows you Jesus, 
and it shows you all of his imperfect followers who are literally following him is there to give you a picture of what it looks like to pursue Jesus Christ. Not many of us need a picture of what it looks like to pursue this world. You just pick up a newspaper and you'll see what it looks like to pursue this world. So sin, and a good way to think about it is misplaced love. It's loving the wrong thing, and that's going to drive everything that we do. Uh, can Christians live a holy life without committing sin? Can a Christian live a holy life without committing sin? There's a little bit of a disagreement on this issue amongst Christians. In other words, some Christians believe that you can, in your walk with Christ, when I say walk with Christ, I mean your pursuit of Christ, your following Christ, get to the point where you do not commit sin. In other words, you don't lie, you don't steal, you, don't, you take your thoughts captive, you don't have lustful thoughts. In other words, it is possible. Others would say, I don't think that's possible this side of heaven. I do agree that we progress, that we mature, but I don't know that you can become sinless. So that's a difference of opinion. This is a Wesleyan church, so I'm just going to quote to you what John Wesley said. He said, I think it's possible, but if so, I think it might happen right before death. Wise man. So a little difference of opinion, but no disagreement about the trajectory. Okay, so there's, there's definitely agreement on that. Okay. Um, I'm comfortable not being of this world, but there are people who depend on me that suffer if I am not successful. How do I explain to my children that, hung, that it's okay to be hungry and they should be content with that because we're no longer pursuing worldly things? Well, I think we're uh, kind of arguing from the extremes here a little bit. And I'm not going to make apologies for what Jesus teaches. And we're not going to water down kingdom living. But you're going to see, as we, as we talk about the next, the follow-on to this series, we're, we're going to do this for several weeks. We're going to actually, once we get through the key ideas of the kingdom and judgment and salvation, you have to understand those parables for the rest to make sense. We're going to talk about what it looks like to live this out because Jesus has tons of parables like that. You're going to find that Jesus isn't saying, oh, you might as well quit your job. And it doesn't matter if you have clothes on your back or food for your family. But he's going to approach it in a really, really different way. Kingdom approach to that, worldly approach to that, very different. That's why it's so important to understand the kingdom the ultimate end of the kingdom, which is judgment, that God is making a separation. And then next week I want to talk to you about salvation. What does it mean to get in or how do you get into the kingdom? When we've got those three things, if I can table that a little, I think it'll become really clear what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about, well, if you follow me, you'll starve. And if you're in this world, you'll have tons of good food to eat. Jesus doesn't accept that dichotomy. Is that fair enough? But it is really important to understand, Jesus says... There's a big difference between being in the kingdom and not. He said, now, like that seed, it may not be obvious at first. He said, but it will be obvious. And the destiny of those two, the weeds and the wheat, very different. Does it really matter what we do on earth? Because as Christians, we, we go to heaven because we have Jesus as our attorney in judgment. Yes, let me talk about that for a second. Actually... It'd be better to talk about that next week, but I don't want you to think I'm doing the political dance here. So I'm going to touch it just a little bit. I really want to talk about that when we talk about salvation. That encompasses an idea called a judicial view of salvation, and it is true. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved because of the work of Christ. But it is not, the scripture does not stop there. The salvation parables won't stop there. They will say that. They won't stop there. They are going to say that it, what we do here on earth matters, and what we do here on earth is a necessary consequence of what Jesus has done in our lives. In other words, let me go back to the weeds and the wheat. He said, even though it's sometimes the weeds and the wheat look alike, meaning you might do some of the same things, over time it's like, oh no, these are very different lives. This, that's a weed and that's wheat. And so our salvation inevitably, necessarily plays itself out in the world. And as it plays itself out, we will find ourselves being more and more distinct. 
That's exactly what the judgment parables are about. So great question. Okay, you ready for heaven and hell? Okay, two big questions that you typically get. Now I want to, now that we know this about what Jesus is teaching, that the kingdom of God is a totally different trajectory. It is where God rules, that it's going somewhere. There will be a judgment, a time when God separates good from evil, the followers of Christ from the followers of Satan, the sons of the kingdom from the sons of the world. All those phrases are talking about the same concept. Let's talk about this. Why does there have to be a hell? This is the big problem of people who approach Christianity. Some are Christians and ask this question. And what that means is, are we understanding what the kingdom is about? Why does there have to be a hell? It is absolutely necessary. Well, I'm going to give you the simple answer. Jesus said there's a hell, there's a hell. If you don't believe in Jesus, well, you probably don't believe in hell, and I'm fine with that. You don't believe in Jesus. But if you believe in Jesus, he thought so. In fact, he thought it was absolutely essential. It's not just true. There has to be a hell. There has to be judgment. Because what Jesus is teaching life in the kingdom is, in my view, morally indefensible without justice. And that's what heaven and hell is all about. So why is there a hell? Let me give you three thoughts on this. First, justice. There is no justice without ultimate consequences. The theodicy problem has no solution without hell. Theodicy problem is this. It's just a theological word for this. Why does a good God allow evil in the world? Why does a good God allow the Syrian dictator to barrel bomb people in Aleppo? In other words, if he's all good and he's all powerful, why does he let that happen? That's called the theodicy question or the theodicy problem. If you look at this life and you take away eternity, you take away hell, you take away consequence, you know, eternal consequence, that problem has no solution. There is no answer. So when you talk to people who don't believe in, just, in God's justice, in judgment, in judgment day, in heaven and hell, they are never going to understand this issue. There is no answer to that. You don't have a good God and evil if you don't have justice at some point. Hell is tied up. Heaven, hell, judgment is God's mechanism for justice. In other words, the kingdom of God doesn't make sense without it. Jesus doesn't bother with this question. He said, let me just tell you the way it is. Kingdom of God, there is a judgment day. And there has to be a judgment day. Or you do not have justice and the problem of evil is insoluble. Second, restraint. There is a hell for other reasons that is the only real restraint in this world. Stop and think about this for a moment. There are other moral, ethical systems in the world besides Christianity. In other words, there are people that say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I'll even write down my moral principles for you. And here's what you're going to find history teaches. The New Testament in Romans, chapter 1 and 2, just absolutely makes this point, and is simply this. Outside of God's justice, there is no human morality. There is no human temporal set of ethics that is able to effectively curb human self-interest. In other words, you may say you're a moral person, but you cannot control your own self Selfishness, self-interest. You must serve God or you will serve Satan. That's what the scripture says. He says, no, I won't. I'm a moral person. I'm going to serve my own morality. Look at the world. My only rebuttal to that is history's rebuttal. Look at the world. Do you see mankind becoming better? I just showed you how many millions, tens of millions of people are killed in the 20th century, the most civilized time in our history. God's point is hell is a necessary restraint on the fallen human nature. The knowledge of judgment is one of the ways God gets our attention. Hell is necessary for God's justice. It is a necessary restraint. If Jesus is just a moral teacher, and this is how people really want, they want to take the virgin birth away, want to take the resurrection away. I understand that. I understand that people wrestle with this. I'm not trying to be dismissive. I just want to make this point. Without Jesus being more than a moral teacher, 
then he's a good moral teacher, but he cannot solve the problem of human selfishness. No moral system can resolve that. So, hell is a restraint on human behavior, and then finally, it is developmental. God doesn't intend hell because he's just mad at people. It's necessary to set things right. I mean, if you think about evil things happening, and some of you have had evil things happen to you, you realize, I understand this. You've seen that writing on the wall of the, of the journal record, and you go, yeah, there has to be an accounting for this. If there's a God, there has to be an accounting. And God said, yes, there does, and, and I will indeed provide that. It's also a restraint on our behavior. Our, system, our country is founded as a, as a Christian nation. I understand people are going to rebut that in some sense and talk about our founders, but I want to mean it in this sense. It is founded upon the idea that there is a creator. There is an ultimate destiny for humanity. It's not temporal. There is such a thing as eternity. There is such a thing as judgment. Now, you can argue what denomination everybody was, but we understand fallen human nature and ultimate judgment and justice comes from God. Consequently, our country is framed in a way to try to restrain that fallen human nature. Our founders say over and over, without this kind of morality, without this understanding, this democracy cannot survive. What are they effectively saying? There is no moral system outside of God's system, the truth, that can curb human impulses to evil, and history bears that out. So there has to be a hell primarily for justice to happen, for judgment. If you say, well, why can't we just slap the bad people on the wrists and let them on into heaven? Because there's no justice in that. That's not a just God. That's a God that you should have problems with. So why does there have to be a hell? It is an integral part of the actual kingdom of God. Second question. It's the one that probably gets people a little more. Does hell exist to punish people for their mistakes? Now we've moved from evil people. We're not thinking Saddam Hussein anymore. We're not thinking Adolf Hitler. We're just thinking about poor klutzes like me who are just trying to be a good person, and I just keep making mistakes. You know, I just keep carpet bombing play, you know, cities, and I go, oops, didn't mean to do that. Now, bottom line, you just think about, well, we're all kind of good people. And we just all make mistakes. And is God really going to send us to hell for our mistakes? Answer to that, I'm just going to put your mind at rest. No. God is not sending anybody to hell for your mistakes. Actually, God doesn't think we're making mistakes. He thinks you are in rebellion. He thinks you are an uprising against him. Listen to how the New Testament talks about this. This is what he thinks of us in our fallen nature. And if it were not for Jesus Christ, we would still be rebels. He said, if we... When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, not when we were klutzes walking around just making some mistakes. He said, no, we were enemies of God. We were pursuing something. We did not acknowledge God. We are pursuing life on our terms. We are self-centered. He said, we were enemies of God. We were reconciled to him. The only way to make this right is we lay down our arms because Jesus Christ made it possible through the death of his son, now, having been reconciled, we'll be saved through his life. 1 Corinthians, he must reign, talking about Christ, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You adulterous people, James says, this is strong language, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of this world becomes an enemy of God. Think about that and what we've just studied. That's what Jesus is teaching in the judgment parables. Choices matter. Every choice is a kingdom choice or a worldly choice. And he said those in the world are enemies of God. And so we were until Christ made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. The scripture does not think that we are people making mistakes. It thinks that we are enemies of God. That makes sense? We sometimes just get this skewed view like, well, no harm, no foul. So I'm living for myself. So I'm out for myself. So I'm greedy. I'm just not as bad as Saddam Hussein. And, you know, so I'm unkind and I'm uncompassionate and I'm kind of judgmental and all that. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. In other words, I measure myself by the ones around me. And here's the problem. If we're all in the world, 
all we're then is we're just arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. God says, this thing's going down. You can get the best seat if you want to, but it's still going down, right? He said, there are no good people. We were in rebellion. So God doesn't send people to hell for making a mistake. He sends people to hell because they are enemies. We are in rebellion against God. That's what the judgment parables are about. He said, there's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of the world, and we are in one or we are in the other. No man can serve two masters. And so Jesus says, the kingdom of God has invaded the world, and we must do one or the other. That's why Jesus calls us to repentance. Repentance, the word literally means to change our mind. And, but implies, when I change my mind, I change my behavior. So repent means to turn around, to go a different direction. Jesus is saying, there's two trajectories. Even though it's not obvious sometimes. You got weeds, you got wheat, and they look alike. But you let those things go. In other words, you just go living your life. He said, oh, it starts to become obvious which are weeds and which are, are fruit-bearing, which are wheat. And so that's what the judgment parables are about. Our choices matter. Now, let me give you one specific example about that, because I know that this sounds, I know you get that idea, that the kingdom of God is here, the rule of God is here, and we can't be dual citizens. It matters. Well, why does it matter? You know, so I'm not in the kingdom and I die. Is there not an appeal process, you know, for this? And the judgment parables say, no, there's not. There's, there's an accounting. There's justice that will be done for those who are rebels and those who are followers that God is going to make a distinguishment. So the next question we often ask is, oh, well then, how do I continue to choose the kingdom? So let me bring it down to just really Monday through Friday, day-to-day -day things. We, first of all, surrender our lives to Christ and follow him. And then day by day, we continue to make kingdom choices. Kingdom choices look like this in our lives. What do we choose to watch on television? In other words, do we watch things that edify us? that lead us towards Christ, or do we put things into our heads that tempt us, that pull us this way? Because Satan would love to just pluck us out of there. It's what do we watch on TV? What do we watch on the news? What do we put in our heads? What do we love? What do we treasure? What are the things? Do our possessions begin to own us? We make those decisions every day. Here's another big one. Who do we let in our inner circle? What I call the inner circle Lauren, I've taught about this for a long time. It's true for your kids, but it's true for adults too. Your inner circle are those people who actually are able to influence you. You have a lot of acquaintances. You may even have a lot of friends. But there's usually only a few people in your life that you will allow to influence you. Choosing those people widely is a, wisely is a kingdom choice. Choosing people that will pull you toward the world like, no, boy, you should, wouldn't you like to get rich? Wouldn't you like to get famous? Don't you want to be popular? Don't you want this? As opposed to people who will say, let's follow Christ together because we know where this leads. It comes down to just our day-to-day -day choices in our lives. We make kingdom choices or we make worldly choices. And Jesus said, those choices have consequences. They have eternal consequences. So for you and for me, it means making that commitment. In other words, I'm going to turn around, and I think I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. And then every single day, I'm looking for opportunities to be more like Christ, to make those kingdom choices. So as you go through your life this week, ask yourself, what are kingdom choices? What are choices that are consistent with the way, you know, I like that, what would Jesus do? That only works if you actually know Jesus, right? But as you keep reading your New Testament, you kind of get a sense, and the Spirit in you pulls you toward Choices that edify, choices to encourage people rather than condemn them, choices to forgive people instead of judging them, choices to bear fruit, to be kind, to be encouraging, to be forgiving, to be loving, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to heal the sick. All those kinds of things are kingdom choices that we make. So that's the so what for us. Let's live. Here's something else the scripture says. Live in a manner worthy of your calling. And what does that mean is live like you're on that trajectory. And that's what God calls us to. Now, you may say, what if I'm not perfect? Well, we talked about that, didn't we? It's not whether we're perfect or not. We're washed in the blood of the Lamb. So let's just get up and continue to walk on that path. It's our trajectory. So we've talked about the kingdom. We've talked about judgment. 
But now here's the really interesting question. What does it look like and what does it mean to get into the kingdom? That's this idea of salvation. Jesus has really interesting idea about getting into the kingdom. And he has a whole suite of parables about being saved. So this week, think about judgment. Next week, you can all get saved. Maybe I should have done those the other way around. Anyway, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks. <laughs>